Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Connie A. Jacobs and Nancy J. Peterson, the editors of a new book on Louise Erdrich's Justice Trilogy, to discuss Erdrich, Justice, and the excellent work of the volume's contributors. Thanks for tuning in. Louise Erdrich is one of the most important, prolific, and widely read contemporary Indigenous writers. In Louise Erdrich's Justice Trilogy, Cultural and Critical Contexts, edited by my guests Connie A. Jacobs and Nancy J. Peterson, leading scholars analyze three critically acclaimed recent novels, The Plague of Doves from 2008, The Round House from 2012, and La Rose from 2016, which make up what has become known as Erdrich's Justice Trilogy. Set in small towns and reservations in northern North Dakota, These three interwoven works bring together a vibrant cast of characters whose lives are shaped by history, identity, and community. Individually and collectively, the essays in this volume illuminate Erdrich's storytelling abilities, the complex relations among crime, punishment, and forgiveness that characterize her work, and the Anishinaabe contexts that underlie her presentation of character, conflict, and community. The volume also includes a reader's guide to each novel a glossary, and an interview with Erdrich that will aid readers as they navigate the justice novels. These timely, original, and compelling readings make a valuable contribution to Erdrich scholarship and subsequently to the study of Native literature and women's authorship as a whole. Connie A. Jacobs is Professor Emerita at San Juan College and the author of The Novels of Louise Erdrich, Stories of Her People. She's also a co-editor of the Modern Language Association's Approaches to Teaching the Works of Louise Erdrich and a co-editor of the Dine Reader, an anthology of Navajo literature. Nancy J. Peterson is professor of English at Purdue University and the author of Against Amnesia, Contemporary Women Writers and the Crisis of Historical Memory, as well as Beloved, Character Studies. She's the editor of Toni Morrison Critical and Theoretical Approaches, and conversations with Sherman Alexi. Nancy, Connie, thank you both so much for joining me to discuss this volume today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Kurt. We're glad to be here. Glad to have you. You know, I was thinking about your collection in recent weeks on Twitter, where the discussion about the, the value of edited collections has been a sort of ongoing conversation. Some folks saying we should do away with them altogether because they're not taken seriously as scholarship and others, you know, pointing to the collaborative nature of edited collections and how much they add to the discourse. And I feel like this recent volume on Erdrich's Justice Trilogy is such an excellent example of why that's such a foolish argument, because you have this great collection of scholarly essays and interpretations, but it's also a super handy resource, not just for the reading of Erdrich's novels, but for the reading of indigenous literature more broadly. And it's offering all of these kind of really handy resources for folks who want to come to this material. So I wondered if we could start the conversation by thinking about the edited collection sort of as a genre and what brought you to putting this one together in the way that you did. Yeah, let me um, address that to begin with and then Connie can follow up. First, I, I like your idea of the collaboration of edited collections. This one certainly is very collaborative. It started back in the spring of 2017. Connie and I have known each other for years. We've read each other's work on Erdrich and other Native authors, and we've been at conferences together. And we put our heads together, and we decided to do a roundtable on Erdrich's novel, La Rose, which had just been published. And people were trying to figure out where it fit in with the two that had preceded it. So Connie and I decided we would just do this roundtable, and we would take that question on directly. I don't know, five or six people maybe on the round table who offered different perspectives on the novel. And the room was packed. There was just such interest amongst the, the people in the room. This was at the Native American Literature Symposium. And then the panelists were having such a lively interchange about ways to think about La Rose and then working back to the other novels. So we realized that there was a great value to trying to develop um, these insights into Erdrich 
you know, she's been written about quite a bit over the years because she's just a fabulous writer and has written so many works and has made us think new perspectives about things all the time. But one of the things that's clear, as you mentioned, Kurt, I've worked on Toni Morrison. Morrison wrote a historical trilogy uh, with starting with Beloved, Jazz, and then in Paradise, the three novels. But they're not really read together. So Connie and I really wanted to take the opportunity so that we would look at all three novels of Erdrich's Justice Trilogy as a big book and that we would allow our scholars to extend their thoughts and we would come up with a collection that would speak to academics, scholars in the field, but would always also speak to readers because Erdrich has a huge following. So we were very consciously trying to craft a volume that would mix audiences. And I should add students and undergrads and graduate students as well um, could all be interested. And we got lucky because Julie Lohr, who used to work for Michigan State University Press, was in the room and she liked the project. She talked to us about it. I talked to Gordon Henry, who's the editor of our series. He was enthusiastic right away. And and Connie had the genius of, you know, here, let's start working on essays. And it took a long time. Edited collections take a lot of effort, a lot of collaboration, a lot of negotiation. But I do believe that it was really, really worth it. At NALS, which is the Native American Symposium, it's a very eager group to hear anything new about Erdrich. I mean, she lives there. She's been a guest speaker several times. And I have to say, there are many, many Erdrich fans. The scholars may not have specialized in Erdrich, but they know her, they teach her, because as we know, she's one of the most prolific and the most taught of all of the indigenous writers. And so Erdrich writes not a book, not in a vacuum. You could not look at any of her books. Yes, they can be read as standalone but they are so enriched by reading in concert with other books. And when you read La Rose, and it's obviously about the types of justice, is it old time justice? Is it the justice of the US government? Is it revenge or is it forgiveness? I mean, all of those big, big themes. But when you look at it in, as I said, in concert with the two previous novels, they blend. She deals with a lot of the same themes throughout, but she writes about it differently with different circumstances, different families. We know that it's all the same community. She would not name Turtle Mountain Reservation. Absolutely not. She finally put a name to what we call the North Dakota novels, and she said, it's Little No Horse. Okay, fine. So we, we said, okay, it's Little No Horse, but we know it's Turtle Mountain, but okay, Little No Horse. But finally, in The Night Watchman, which is semi-historical because she's writing about her grandfather, finally, she does say Turtle Mountain. But it's just the different people, the different groups in a reservation. And I love how she does the history so you can understand things. So if you look at Plague of Doves and the founding of the town there, and she doesn't write just about Native communities. She also writes about the surrounding towns which have Native people and the immigrant settlers who came and took the land, but who came and they live together and they have to learn to live together. And that's, you know, one of the themes. But it just seems when we had these wonderful essays on LaRose, but it seems like that wasn't enough, a standalone on just one book. They do go together in interesting ways. You reproduce an interview with Louise Erdrich in the volume uh, from the Paris Review where she talks about the process of writing these three books and the idea that it's sort of an accidental trilogy, that she found herself writing about similar characters, writing about similar themes, noticing like, oh, this is connected to the other thing that I was doing before, and I'm actually doing a second installment in a series here and kind of building that over time. It's interesting that your work on the edited collection had a similar kind of a similar kind of origin where you started with one book and thought, well, it's actually, we need a little bit more and it's connected to these other things. 
I wonder if you could tell us, Nancy or Connie, about that Justice Trilogy. What form did it ultimately take and how did it come to be thought of as a sort of single work with three pieces as opposed to three standalone volumes? Yeah, that's a, a, a really interesting question. You know, we call it the Justice Trilogy now, and it's in the, the title of our collection. Her 2016 conversation with Lori Herzl, where Erdrich talks about how it wasn't planned. And Lori Herzl said, calls it an accidental trilogy. Well, there are certain abiding interests, as Connie's already indicated, for Erdrich. So in a couple of those interviews around LaRose, she says, I was halfway through the roundhouse when I realized all of these books were going to be related. And it is true. If you start to look at them, even though she didn't pre-plan this, every single book begins with a violent death or some other act of violence. So there's a kind of rhythmic parallel between all of them, the way that you are immediately plunged into a scene in The Plague of Doves, for instance. We're in the, the scene of a house where a man has just shot a family. And it takes till the end of the book really to piece together that. And there are so many other crimes and deaths that occur over the course of the novel. Or in The Roundhouse, Geraldine is violently attacked and raped in the chapter one and ends up in the hospital being taken to the hospital. I mean, we are on the edge of our seats worried about her by just the end of the first chapter. And then in La Rose, we find out that Landreau Irons has been out hunting and he shot at this buck that he's been trying to get a hold of, but he shoots and then he finds out he's killed his neighbor's son accidentally. And so Every one of those books starts out with this scene of incredible loss and devastation, and sometimes to the point of criminality, and then goes on to write the narrative to explain how those events came about, how the people in the book reckon with them, how they struggle, how they are traumatized, how they try to heal themselves. So yes, it's true, not pre-planned, but what a glorious set of books to have in terms of thinking through really a range of issues. Erdrich herself draws on history. The Plague of Doves involves the Spicer murders from the Dakotas. It talks about the lynching of Indian men, which happened in North Dakota. She is refashioning all this material. I don't mean to say that it's derivative. There's a town fever episode that draws on a historical survey report in the Plague of Doves in the Roundhouse. She's clearly worried about the huge prevalence of missing and murdered Indigenous women and children. And she cites the amnesty report on this at the back of the Roundhouse. And then in La Rose, she talks about her mother's telling her story about a couple that gave their child to another couple was actually given as a gift to make amends. And that's really the kind of narrative arc that drives LaRose. So in all of these cases, Erdrich shows us someone who has been attentive to the people around her, the issues around her, the histories around her, various acts of violence and compassion. And then they've just been simmering and then they come into dramatic and wonderful, eloquent shape in these three books. The Justice Trilogy, which we now say and assume, it's always been that way, but it hasn't. But I would make the case all of her books are related. Some are more related than others. I think the theme of justice clearly is found. There are a few that maybe don't deal with it directly, but it, in some way, most of her major works do. And one of the essays by Ellen Arnold talks about how trees are something that continue to be important and to define the land. It's the land and the people. And that's always a resounding theme. And then you have that theme of justice of the land being taken away. And that's particularly in Night Watchmen. I know we're not talking about that, but it's the same thing. So 
it's a beautiful thing, really, I think, to think of them together because each are enriched by the others. You've mentioned a couple of the themes from the works that are, are from Erdrich's work, sort of more broadly speaking. They're always dealing with history, indigenous issues, oppression, erasure, you know, violence, these kinds of things. When you talk about the Justice Trilogy, is there a particular aspect of justice or a particular sort of question about you know, what is justice or what is the people's relationship to each other in, in light of justice that she seems to be pursuing over those three volumes? I think justice can be defined in many ways, according to Erdrich. And that's what she's showing us. We have the frontier justice in Plague of Doves, which is clearly not justice. It was to the settlers. It wasn't for the Native people. And Roundhouse, with Geraldine being raped by a non-Indian, and so the laws didn't apply. Erdrich takes a really big political issue in each book and just hammers it through her narrative. And with a lesser skilled writer, it wouldn't work. It would be in your face. But with her, she draws these wonderful characters. She gives you community reactions. She shows you the nuances. And because of that, you're drawn into the story. And at the end, you're kind of got, oh, yeah, you get it. You get it because it's so strong. And then, of course, in La Rose, we've got the old time justice. Because in a court of law in the U.S., if you accidentally shot your neighbor's child, who happened to be his nephew, you know, you'd be hauled off to jail. And but even that for him, for Landra, would not have been an appropriate punishment. He was trying to punish himself. He knew what he did was wrong. It was an accident, but still a life was taken. And so how are the two families going to resolve that? How's the community going to deal with that loss? And this rift between the two families, the mothers are half sisters. So it's so interesting to read them in conjunction with each other. And just even to go back to the North Dakota novels there, it's a little bit tighter in terms of characters going from one novel to the next. Like at the end of the Bingo Palace, you've got poor Lipsha stranded in a field, freezing cold with a, a baby. And you go, but, but what's going to happen? It's not an accidental trilogy. Then she writes and we find out, phew, okay, everybody survives. But this one, it just goes together. And she's such a good writer that she realized that. So, plus she has a lot of good editors and good friends who say, oh, Louise and her sister, you know, one of her best editors and her girls. So, you know, when you're that good and you have that kind of editorial help, good things happen. And this is a theme that really resonates for Erdrich. She says in one of the interviews she gave when LaRose was published, she says, quote, justice is the foundation of a trusting society. It's the foundation of going forward and making a life. Justice is an enormous issue for this country. And we get a sense of her in that quote, um, echoing exactly what Connie's pointed out, taking on these larger social issues, especially for indigenous peoples in this country, where there hasn't been a, a, a lot of justice in, in many cases, right? So Justice Trilogy is also about poking at the tremendous legacy of injustice. And then it's the question of, can the legal system address that? You know, in some cases, no. It, it is also then dramatizing where the laws fall short when it comes to indigenous peoples and the, uh, the concept of sovereignty. So sometimes we end up with revenge or vigilante justice instead of true justice, whatever that might mean. But I also love the fact that, you know, by the time you get to the end of the trilogy, especially at the end of LaRose, you're starting to think of, well, how do we move from revenge to forgiveness? How is it that we can have something we might think of as reparative or restorative justice. And that seems for Erdrich, I think, it, for the ways that Connie and I both think about it, 
that restorative reparative justice is aligned with Anishinaabe traditions and culture and beliefs. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what it means to like believe and practice restorative justice from that Anishinaabe perspective. Well, to come back to the example of Landro kills his neighbor's child, then he gives his own son to that family. That, that strikes just an emotional blow in his own marriage, in his own relationship with his wife, of course. Eventually, it gets talked about. It is agonized over first, of course. It does this LaRose. It is the, the young boy LaRose who's given. He turns out to be a healer. He turns out to be an intermediary. He turns out to be someone who can go between both families and help and be the presence that they need to move forward. As it turns out, he also has the wonderful capacity to commune directly with the ancestors. So there's a really wonderful scene at the end of the novel where the community comes together. There are all sorts of rifts developed throughout the novel. I mean, we're talking about the main one. I mean, the novel is just so rich and so layered, but there are all sorts of rifts. But the final scene is where this community, community comes together for a graduation party. And, you know, you wouldn't have predicted that that could ever have happened in the first part of the book, but they do come together. And it is because of this presence of LaRose and, and what he means and where he's come from and the teachings he's carrying. He was sent, uh, she wants us to believe, to heal this rift. He is from a long line of healers through his mother. And the tradition was that when a healer is needed, one will be sent. And you wouldn't think it's this little six or seven-year-old boy, but he was an old soul so wise beyond his years and through his acceptance of his situation, not immediately, but living with two families and with his ability to heal in different ways and to protect each family and to protect each parent from themselves, from doing harm because of either the loss or the pain inflicted. And Erdick has throughout written about special healers. And again, this may be something that audiences and readers may not want to say, okay, well, that's just magical realism. They, they like to throw out that term. Well, actually, okay, you could think of it that way, but I think it's probably better to think of a way of being and looking at the world that is not part of our Western culture, but it is part of other cultures. And it can work. You can see examples of it. And I think that's one reason from the very beginning with the very powerful character, Fleur, she was in the North Dakota novels and she was a healer. But here to have a little boy, just the power of him, it really makes it so arresting for readers, I think. Another brilliant move on her part, <laughs> but there's so many. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Connie A. Jacobs and Nancy J. Peterson, editors of Louise Erdrich's Justice Trilogy, Cultural and Critical Context. You've done such a great job of giving us a taste of what that trilogy is like and the way that it deals with history and tradition and culture and, and tries to reanimate some of that and change the way that we think about it and experience it from different perspectives. I wonder now if we could think a little bit more specifically about the context of the collection to see how the scholars working on that trilogy with you all are, are trying to do similar things for our understanding of the work or for our understanding of Native literature more broadly, et cetera. Maybe it'd be worth going back to that roundtable uh, when you were working on thinking about LaRose to ask when you sort of developed the idea for the collection and started to fill it out. Did you seek folks to provide particular contexts or was it a more kind of blanket call for anybody working on this set of works to contribute to the collection? We were pretty specific <laughs> because both of us have worked in the field for so long and we have colleagues who we know would just write the kind of essay that would really enrich a volume like this. And I can't say everyone we asked said yes. And I can't say that every essay we got in was one that would fit 
with the rest of the collection. But we asked people who are Erdrich scholars if they would please contribute. And of course, they were up on, they'd read all the books, they'd read the scholarship, they'd taught many, if not all of the books. So that's how we started. And then it was through our friend Gordon that we got the Spanish collaborators, which I just love that. Nancy, you know a little bit more about that. So you want to fill that in? I, I just love that part of it. Well, you, you know, Erdrich is, we think of her in terms of American literary history, right? But she has a huge international following. I don't know how many languages her works have been translated into, but we had the very good fortune of having two scholars at Spanish universities who were just at that moment working on Erdrich. And so um, Gordon Henry put us in contact with them. And so we started to see from their perspective, you know, there's an international perspective on trauma, healing, resilience that comes through through their works. That's completely fascinating. So we also, you know, let me just be honest, we asked everybody who was going to be a contributor to be able to speak to the trilogy as a whole, even if there was one novel in particular they wanted to focus on. That can be daunting. I, I, if I added up all the pages, I don't know, we might be a thousand pages between the three novels, Connie, something like that. And, you know, we, so some of the essays are fairly focused on one novel. But we asked everybody to be able to bridge out a little bit and to think about the implications for the other novels if you were going to focus on one. For instance, um, Connie's own essay talks about dogs and particularly La Rose, but gives a fascinating history of indigenous relationships with dogs and, um, and, and how that factors into some of Erdrich's other work. So we were trying to feature threads strands, themes that could be found specifically in the trilogy, but also then we hoped once people really felt like they had a sense of these novels as a group, that you could start to see how this could spin out into an understanding of Erdrich's work as a whole. We don't go there, but we hope that we put our readers in a place that they would be able to make these connective tissues. That being said, there are probably three important kinds of groups for the essays. One is about crime and punishment. The collection starts with essays that explore crime and punishment from Deb Barker, Ken Romer, and Iberola Armendariz, one of our Spanish colleagues. And there's a lot there to be said about how to reckon with injustice and violence in all of those essays. They all have fascinating takes. And then the second group cluster of essays really thinks about kinship. Kinship is important. It became one of the threads that was part of our roundtable that Connie and I talked about later that was just such an important issue that hasn't been talked about enough, we thought, in terms of Erdrich's scholarship. So Ellen Arnold looks specifically at trees. There's a hanging tree that factors in two of the novels and a climbing tree that factors in another. Then she bridged out to think about trees and relationship to environmentalism and land and, and a holistic way of thinking about a tribal ethos that thinks about kinship beyond human to human, that thinks human to land to environment. And Connie's essays in there thinking about humans and animals, specifically dogs and wolves. And we also have a more theoretical essay from Silvia Martinez Falquina, one of our Spanish colleagues who thinks about grief in Erdrich's trilogy, specifically Rose, and how grief is really isolating. And yet Erdrich shows us that community and kinship networks are essential for working through grief by reading the trilogy. Then Connie and I also were very clear about wanting to emphasize Anishinaabe context for Erdrich's work. So we have a couple of essays, including my own, which looks at old-time Ojibwe floral beadwork, specifically on bandolier bags, and its aesthetics to try to think about how 
Erdrich's narrative decisions in the trilogy are really a huge variety and yet are interlinked. These old-time bandolier bags would have vines and tendrils that would have, let's say, four or five different kinds of flowers on them, and sometimes pine cones. So it wasn't naturalistic, but you know what? Those vines connected everything. So that's kind of how Erdrich's work functions. It is the vine that makes things come together in a kinship community. And then our uh, friend and colleague, Margaret Newton, looks specifically at Anishinaabe language in the trilogy and talks about language justice by looking specifically at the variety of languages Erdrich brings into play, particularly Ojibwe but also Mischief and other languages, including a line from Klingon. <laughs> so we wanted to have Meg's really amazing sense of how that language matters, because as Erdrich's career has evolved, she has become much more deliberate about her use of philosophies that are attached to particular words and phrases. And then we have a contribution from Gwen Nell Westerman, who was mentored by Louise Erdrich at the Turtle Mountain Writing Workshop. It was Louise who asked her to keep writing poems, many of which turned out to be bilingual. Gwen is Dakota. So she writes a very personal kind of piece talking about Erdrich's influence on her own sense of trying to reclaim language in um, literature. So those were the things that we were trying to, to emphasize overall. Crime, punishment, reconciliation, then kinship, and then Anishinaabe contexts in terms of the scholarly approaches. But one of the really important parts of the book, and I'm hoping Connie will speak to this, is the reader's guide to the trilogy. Yes, Peter Beidler and Gay Barton gifted us with the reader's guide to the novels of Louise Erdrich. And it's been at least one revision. And it finally stopped because of health problems of the two editors. But Erdrich herself was even known to use it at times. And I know for me, it's indispensable. For example, I couldn't have done the dog essay without it because I'd have to go back and look at it. And of course, I have all the books and all my notes. But if you really want to dig into Erdrich, the people, the places, the land, the community, you can't remember everybody because there's always somebody new she's bringing in. And then you don't remember, not wait, how are they related? And then she'll change people around, give them new names. So anyway, we were able to persuade Pete Weidler and Gay Barton if they would please gift us with the reader's guide for this book. They had started working on actually Plague of Doves, and they did have that done. They were halfway through Roundhouse, where unfortunately, my dear friend and my colleague, Gay Barton, got very ill and she has since passed. And so Pete had to finish up the last ones. I mean, they worked together. But again, it's so invaluable to have that and to see. When you read that, the links, so you'll see a name and then he would reference, oh, well, that was so-and-so's aunt, or that was in so-and-so's class at the reservation school. And it just brings it alive in a way, because, you know, none of us like to read a book where we don't know what's going on, like reading a Russian novel and you have to have pages and pages of notes or even Dickens, you know, where you just can't keep everyone straight and you lose the storyline. Well, Barton and Beidler made it possible for us to really enjoy to the fullest these wonderful books of Erdrich. And to have this in our volume, we were so thrilled because the theoretical is wonderful and it enriches a reading, but this is just down and dirty. This is just practical. And people need that too. Not only students, but scholars need that as well thrilled me to see that it was there because I feel like the thing that, you know, we started with that kind of skeptical Twitter conversation about, ah, what's the use of an edited collection? And I feel like producing a reader's guide is the kind of scholarly labor that just gets no love at all. And it is, as you say, 
facilitates so much work to have this index of all the characters and what their relationships are and overarching themes and all of the kinds of readers guide resources that we all like long for and need, but no one wants to be the ones to to put together and do. So I'm so glad we could celebrate your colleagues. And I, I'm sorry to hear about, about the passing. Um, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it was very sad. I wonder if um, I would be really interested if we could spend a little bit of time on your essay, Connie, and maybe on, on yours too, Nancy, to hear a little bit about your individual contributions to the volume. You've done such a good job of painting this picture of what resources are available and the kinds of three different themes that are going on in the edited collection. We, we heard a little bit about Nancy and the beadwork and Connie, you're working on dogs. Could you say a little bit more about your projects individually? Sure. So one of the questions that came up with LaRose when we did the roundtable back in 2017 is this Erdrich's typical narration? And the answer was no. Erdrich has loved to build novels with multiple narrators and to play them off one against each other. And so this was one of the comments I knew. So back at that roundtable, I talked a little bit about the narrative perspective of Rose, LaRose, which is a third-person omniscient narrator. The roundhouse is also unusual, though, because Erdrich decided to use a first-person narrator who tells us the whole story. It's Joe. He's a boy. Well, as we learn, he's actually an adult writing about this summer in his life of 1988, but it takes a while to, to really realize that. But The Plague of Doves has Erdrich's typical multi-narrator strategy where chapters are grouped according to narrator and they, there's not necessarily always a sense of chronology progressing as we move from narrator to narrator. So there's, a, there's always this kind of interesting tension in Erdrich as a typical novel. And many of us who have read her for years have just come to think of Erdrich, oh, we're going to meet many, many narrators and char characters, right? Hence, we need the reader's guide. So LaRose is published and all of a sudden we're like, oh, she's, she's connecting these books, but the narrative strategies are quite different. So that was the seed planted for me. And I thought, yeah, there's a reason for that. Now I need to really think about that. And so LaRose had answered and addressed so many threads of the other novels. And I was trying to think of a way to explain that in a really beautiful and powerful way. And it just so happened I had been going to a number of, this was pre-pandemic, so I had been going to a number of, of um, exhibitions of Native art and Indigenous art shows and things. I live in Indiana, so I'm close to the Idol Jorg, which runs the Contemporary Native Fellowship. And someone had a bandolier bag on display. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's it look at these roses and La Rose and prairie roses were oftentimes depicted. And I um, was born in Minnesota and I've had, had some help from the Minnesota State Historical Society. They have an amazing collection of bandolier bags that they've published now a, a wonderful book talking about Minnesota practices of, of Ojibwe women and making these bandolier bags. So the, the people who worked on the staff there were really helpful. And I just really started to think about what this said philosophically about Erdrich's sense of design, aesthetics, of balance, because so many times they're asymmetrical. They should be out of balance. But Ojibwe women design these amazing floral patterns that are perfectly balanced, even if they're not the same. So that became a way of trying for me to try to think of. Erdrich's overall narrative arcs and strategies and philosophy. And I hope people will find that interesting. I certainly find it interesting. I think that collusion of art forms is such a fascinating idea or the idea that, that there's a, a kind of aesthetic guiding a cultural art making practice that can be found, you know, in the, the fiction and in the, you know, the stitching and in the other kinds of tasks or crafts or artworks that that folks are making it's such a it's a fascinating move i think to look to other cultural products and see something that really this is reminiscent of the storytelling tradition or the the, the fiction writing tradition some of her key characters are beaters so once you get the image you start to look back at the novels and you're like oh so-and-so beads so-and-so is wearing beaded earrings so-and-so has a beading tray on her her dresser at all times 
I mean, it also then made me go back to the work and notice things that I had not really paid attention to before. But it's a way of looking at the world. And it's not always the same for all of us. And she's showing us from an indigenous point of view. Erdrick loves to revise. I mean, she just loves to revise and she figures she's never done. And so there's a wonderful line, very often quoted in tracks. The story comes up differently every time. And that's a good way to think about Erdrick. It comes up differently. So if maybe the characters have changed or if you hear about it from one point of view, but it's not at all what you thought was going on. That's what Erdrick is doing there. But to my question, the dog really struck me in La Rose. And I know people can easily just go, oh, it's just an ordinary dog and, you know, cute dog. And it went from the iron house over to when La Rose left and went to live with his new family. But I didn't think so because there have been too many important dogs throughout Erdrick and whether they play minor or major roles. This is the most major starring role a dog has ever played from my point of view. And I just thought it was so interesting. And in the work that I've done on Erdrick, I really like to connect culture and history, Anishinaabe culture and history. I am not native. I am not Anishinaabe. But that is something that has fascinated me as a way into the work. And I think perhaps as a non-native scholar, I can feel that that is an okay approach because I'm not saying I'm Anishinaabe. I'm saying this is what I know. So if I go through the history of what we know, it was wonderful. And then, as Nancy said, the connection between indigenous people and wolves, you know, it goes back at least 30,000 years and it was wolves. And then the wolf became the dog. That's highly contested how, you know, the... uh, uh, anthropologists will tell you they have different um, theories. But what I tried to uh, do was to privilege the indigenous scholars and their view. But the more I read about this dog, it's like, wow. And the dog in La Rose is a healer in the same way that La Rose is. And, you know, we don't often think of that unless you're a real dog person. And you've had a dog who's been there for you, who senses your mood and knows, keeps you out of danger. I mean, we read those wonderful stories. And so that's what fascinated me. And I just love doing the research and connecting everything. And so it was really fun for me to go back over every single novel. And yeah, there were some where it was just very, very small world. It's like they went on stage and then they went off. But there were dogs everywhere. I mean, there are two dogs in Night Watchmen. They're not starring, but they're important. And then even in the sentence, this last one, there's a do- I kept looking. Where's the dog? Come on, Louise. I know you're going to have a dog here. And sure enough, there is a dog. And often her dogs talk, but it's a mind talk. You know, if you're a dog owner or cat owner, you can communicate in different ways, however you want to say that. So I was fascinated with that. And actually, the article was written for Louise. I figured nobody else will probably like it, but I bet Louise will like this and appreciate it. So, <laughs> and I had fun doing it. So, it's really great to hear that again, to go back to the value of an edited collection like this, that everyone bringing their individual perspectives really highlights the sort of multiplicity of different like ways of meaning and different kinds of things that an artist is working with. And to be able to say, well, my, being a dog person and being interested in you know this history and the experience of living with animals in this way, I see this in the novels that she you know certainly is putting there and and thinking about and doing an, you know on purpose um, that others are not like keyed into and so like to have that perspective to have all of the different scholars that you have in the volume coming together to really try to elucidate um, what's going on in the Justice trilogy is just such a, a an interesting and and really a laudable endeavor, I think. The volume offers us all of these great resources, and we, we talked about the Justice Trilogy. I remember in the interview, Erdrich herself says something along the lines of not expecting that folks are going to necessarily approach these books, you know, one after another. And, and as you say, the Justice Trilogy is part of a sort of lar- much larger body of work that, you know, continues and is evolving and might even touch back on this trilogy for all we know as she kind of continues to revise and write new work. 
how would you suggest that listeners completely unfamiliar with this subject would want to approach these books and then your collection as well? Well, I think if you read them in the order in which they were published, I think that helps because I think each one links to the other, perhaps loosely, but as I've said before, I think it enriches the others. So that by the time you get to the end of La Rose with that beautiful scene of forgiveness and community acceptance and coming together against so many odds, I think each novel receives a greater depth and becomes even more significant in tandem with the other. So I would recommend reading them in the order in which they're written. So there'd be Plague of Doves, then Roundhouse, and then LaRose. But Nancy, do you agree or do you disagree? You know, I teach Erdrich regularly, and I've done it a number of different ways. I have done the trilogy itself in order. Almost everybody was reading Erdrich for the first time. It was graduate students, and our volume wasn't out. And so there was a lot of explaining to, to do between the novels. I have also taught Plague of Doves standalone. You know, if you really read Plague of Doves and are interested, you can't help but go on to read, right? And of course, The Roundhouse, which has gotten so much attention, which after all was the great read for the National Endowment for Humanities, I believe, a few years back. Anyway, that, that has been discussed all over. So I try to tell people who ask me, and they do because they know I'm reading all the time, you know, I want to really start on Erdrich, where should I start? And I say, there are no perfect points of entry. Find the narrative that really interests you and you will keep going, right? I mean, in one of her early interviews, Erdrich says, I'm hooked on narrative. And, you know, I think she has that effect on her readers. You start somewhere and you get hooked on narrative. You do not want the stories to stop. You want to meet these people and get to know them better. You want to understand the community better. It's you just, well... We just can't stop, can we? <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting. Um, I saw a recent podcast of Erdrich. It was a couple years ago, but she was in D.C. It was politics and books. And one of the women said, but what about the character of Lipsha? What happened to him? And she said, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's so many other stories to tell. I did an article once on Erdrich and her contribution to indigenous literature. And what I found was she's writing one long story. And I thought, oh, phew, now how am I going to prove that? And I found it. I found an interview where she said that's exactly what she's doing. So as Nancy said, you can go into that story any place. You might understand it better if you've read a couple of the others. But once you get hooked on her, and we're assuming you will, because she's such an amazing writer. Once you get hooked on her, you want to know more. And you want to know more about the people and the land. And you get hooked on some characters. I know I want to know what happens to Albertine. I love the character of Albertine from the uh, North Dakota novels. And of course, Lipsha. But who knows if we'll ever see them again, you know. But any place you can enter is a good place including with this excellent edited collection that casts so much light on what's happening in these volumes and how they're all working together. As we conclude here, I wonder, Nancy and Connie, are you uh, working on any current projects or uh, uh, perhaps another editorial collaboration that you might be willing to share? Well, I know Connie has some things in the fire, but together we're not working on an edited collection, although we are hoping to feature some of our the contributors to this volume at an upcoming American Indian Literature Symposium. We'll see. We're waiting to get word of that because we just want to get the word out. But yeah, we're always busy with something. It's just that, and since this book was published, Eric published The Night Watchman and now The Sentence. So we'll have to keep up with her. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. <laughs> yes, I, I have a book coming out with actually one of the contributors 
in this volume, Deborah Barker, and we're writing about uh, post-Indian aesthetics. So it's literary sovereignty, basically. So when you were talking about aesthetics and you know the way of seeing the world, it's the ways, it's essays on how Native writers have been doing this. They have been writing their own aesthetic. We just haven't been paying attention. The literary world of non-Natives who feels that they have to write about this, this, and this. Well, they haven't been. And they haven't been doing it for a long time. And if we pay attention, these particular authors will show us that. So that will be out in a few months. Well, it sounds really great. And I hope that we have um, done the Lord's work here, uh, proselytizing <laughs> Louise Erdrich and the Justice Trilogy and this excellent volume. As I say at the outset, it really does, I think, provide a lot of good support for the argument that edited collections are a truly valuable scholarly endeavor that they're bringing together you know, collaborators to really dig down into something and to provide excellent interpretations and resources for readers who want to know more. So thank you both so much for taking the time to join me this afternoon. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for this conversation. Thank you. And, and you know, you can find all these books and our book at Louise Erdrich's Birchbark Books. Please support her. She does wonderful work. Independent bookstore. Louise Erdrich's Justice Trilogy, Cultural and Critical Contexts, is available at MSU Press and other fine booksellers, as Connie says, including Louise Erdrich's own Birchbark Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota, or online at birchbarkbooks.com. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milbe. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.